1: Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Mel Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once in a lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com summitcamp.comslash moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer... And someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Moods and Modes, episode 21. This is Alex, and that right there, my friends, is one of my favorite guitarists of all time. He is one of our greatest living improvisers. He is one of our finest composers. When it comes to jazz, he is one of the most award-receiving, chart-topping, poll-winning, preeminent people ever in the history of the genre. At the same time... The term jazz musician with its usual associations and connotations, when used to describe this individual, is a bit, shall we say, misleading. Now it wouldn't be right to call that a miscategorization, but it is most definitely an oversimplification. So allow me to be 100% honest with you and reveal that I'm not entirely sure how to begin this episode. As a certain high-profile elected official once said, this is a big effing deal. So I'll start with this. Had someone come up to me in July of 2020 when Moods and Modes began and said, pick five people, your top five dream guests to have on this new podcast you're doing, who would they be? Well, sadly, two of them are no longer with us as of a short time later. And of course, that would be Chick Corea and Eddie Van Halen. Yet if I think of three more, well, there are others who may hover in and out of the top five at any time. The George Bensons, the Brian Mays, the John Schofields. I'm pretty sure my answer at that moment would have included the following three, all alive, well, and active, knock on wood, and thank goodness, Jeff Beck, Herbie Hancock, and Pat Metheny. And of those three, one of them is here. Yes, you and I are gonna hang out with Pat Metheny, who joins us today on Moods and Modes. I probably don't need to tell you what a big thrill this is for me, but let's just say it's what some people refer to as a bucket list item achieved. Now, just a few more thoughts before we get into things. First, this is gonna be a two-part episode. Pat would warrant a couple in-depth episodes, even if he wasn't here with us. It's almost as though there are multiple Pat Mathenys. There is the Pat Matheny, who is a familiar fixture on contemporary jazz radio with album sales that rival pop groups as a band leader of the Pat Matheny group in collaboration with the late great Lyle Mays, Steve Rodby, and others. <laughs> Then there's the serious jazz guitar pat metheny the one who plays music far less accessible than the pat metheny group but far more respected by let's call them the serious jazz crowd which includes many skeptics whom he won over by collaborating with artists they respected name just a few. Jack Dejeanette, Joshua Redman, Dewey Redman, Billy Higgins, Charlie Hayden, Abby Lincoln, Brad Meldow, Kenny Garrett, Christian McBride. We could go on and on and on. And there is another collaborator that I have not mentioned yet, but he's an important one. That is Ornette Coleman. And Ornette Coleman coincides with the emergence of yet another Pat Metheny. Let's call this one the experimental, outside, free, avant-garde, almost punk rock Pat Metheny. (laughs) The one that has occasionally embarked upon projects that have been known to cause both groups of previously described fans to walk out of his concerts and, in some cases, march back to the record store's new album in hand, demanding a refund. Yet he always follows it up with another album and concert tour that captures everything they loved about him in the first place, and he wins them over all over again. So I wanted to talk to Pat about a few things that I don't often see discussed in his interviews. One of them is indeed these different sides. Where do they come from? Why do they exist? How does each one inform the other? And beyond that, what are his motivations? How is he so productive? This is somebody that puts out an album or two a year. They're all top quality. And these are just the albums in which he's the band leader or solo artist. It's not even counting the other great albums he plays on in which somebody else is leading the project. Now, by the time I discovered Pat, it was the mid-90s. He was widely associated with both the late 70s, in which he was considered one of the groundbreaking guitar players, rightfully so, and the late 80s, in which his band, Pat Matheny Group, was signed to Geffen Records with label mates that included such folks as Aerosmith, Cher, Don Henley, and Guns N' Roses. Yet it's while he's signed to Geffen Records that he puts out his most ambitious, serious jazz guitar trio album at that point. Question and answer. This is quite a bold artistic move because there's no way that a straight-ahead jazz guitar trio album with Roy Haynes and Dave Holland is going to have anywhere near the commercial success of the earlier Pat Metheny group albums. By doing what he did, he may have annoyed the record label. Pat was not signed to Geffen for too much longer. But he brought me in. I became a lifelong fan. And I'm not the only one. I've spoken to others. And it's no exaggeration to say our lives changed for the better. Sure, they were musically enriched, but we also saw somebody very high up in the music industry, in the world of guitar and instrumental music, saying, you know what? I don't care what's expected of me. I don't care if the record sales are lower than before. I don't care if some of the fans don't get it. I don't care if I lose my major record deal and have to go back to the more artsy, independent labels, all of which is what happened. So Pat not only set the example of choosing art over commerce, he also showed that it was possible for artists to continue to develop and get better with age. I'm sure you can think of plenty of examples of artists for whom there's a sense you should have caught them back when they first came out, when they were in their prime, the newer material just doesn't hold a candle to their earlier work. Well, that is not the case with Pat. A new Pat Metheny album is every bit as exciting as one that came out in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or any time since, which brings us to his new album. It's called Side Eye, full title Side Eye NYC, volume one, four, and it's with a bunch of younger players, folks who grew up listening to the music of Pat Metheny. So, some of these songs have been around for a while, some of them have been released on other albums a few times, yet they sound completely fresh. Again, Side Eye NYC. And I'm thankful that this album has Pat doing a little bit of press. He's not doing a whole lot. So I'm especially grateful to his team and Pat for considering joining us. However, one of the few other appearances that he has done is the show hosted by Rick Beato on YouTube. And Rick was mentioned on our previous episode. So while there may be a little bit of occasional overlap between Pat's interview with Rick and his appearance here, for the most part, we go to very different places than they do and vice versa. And as I said earlier, there's so much to talk about concerning Pat Metheny and so much music, more than we can possibly get to, even in two episodes. So on that note, and many more to come, here is part one of me with the one, the only Pat Metheny. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. There's so much I would love to talk to you about. There's no way I can possibly talk to you about all of it, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you're a towering influence, and you're such an independent artist as well, and I was listening to some of your music that some critics have described as, quote-unquote, wild left turns. (laughs) I'd love to talk a little bit about those as well, and some of your associations, but also whatever you want to talk about.
2: I'm happy to talk about anything. So whatever you're interested in, it'll be a pleasure for me to talk to you.
1: Okay, great. I started this podcast last year. The, the original idea of it was really to focus on lesser known guitar players. So you, you actually don't qualify. So in a way, <laughs> you're completely wrong for this. <laughs> I kid. The first uh, episode ended up being a trip to Matt Yumanov's guitar shop. Oh wow! He did a repair on an L five of mine, and your name came up. And he said he had done some work for you on a guitar that used to be owned by Jay Giles.
2: That's correct. Yeah.
1: Do you still have the guitar?
2: I do, and you know Matt is a very special guy, as you know. I mean, very special.
1: Very outspoken.
2: <laughs> he's a unique, very, he's a classic New York character in every mm. way that's connected to the old Gretsch factory. And, uh-huh. you know, his knowledge of the sort of arcane details of the electric guitar post-World War II is probably only equaled by Grun and four or five other people on the planet. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had just loved going to his shop and hanging out with him and hearing his stories about things, not to mention that they do great work there.
1: Yeah, his stories are incredible. Yeah. So he said Jay Giles had ruined the guitar, basically, or the, <laughs> put some holes in it.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny about guitars, since this is a guitar thing. You know, I never really cared that much about guitars, to tell you the truth. They were kind of like screwdrivers for me, like Mm -hmm. This one does that, this one does that. And I had my, you know, one guitar, which was the ES-175 that I got for a hundred bucks when I, you know, first got going. And along the way, guitars in a sort of utilitarian sense, you know, made their presence known to me, but it was always sort of satellites around that main guitar. And that kind of exponentially expanded over the years as sort of my sense of you know being a band leader and the whole idea of orchestration became kind of an element in that and the different ways that i could contribute by having this guitar tuned in this
1: nashville tuning and Uh this one being that and and please pardon the brief interruption. In case anybody is wondering what a Nashville tuning is, that is when you tune a six-string guitar an octave higher. This is usually done by swapping the lower four strings and replacing them with the higher strings from a set of strings designed for a 12-string guitar. Famous examples include Hey You by Pink Floyd, Wild Horses by the Whirling Stones, and Phase Dance by the Pat Metheny Group.
2: 12 strings tuned in different ways. And it was always, you know, like I said, it was like, we're going to build a house here. And it doesn't really matter whether the guy used an electric screwdriver or a regular screwdriver. The point is you need a screwdriver to do it. So I didn't worry too much about whether it was this brand or that brand. It was just like, that was that sound. Then, you know, for some reason, About 10 years ago, I'm very late with just about everything in my life. I got really interested in guitars suddenly. (laughs) And this began because a great guitar player in New York, Miles Okazaki, who plays with Steve Bowman, great player. player. Mm -hmm. He brought over his 175 that had a Charlie Christian pickup in it. Uh And I had run into them here and there over the years, including a guy in Missouri who had a 150 with a Charlie Christian pickup on it. Uh That was impossible to play. The strings were like two inches off the neck and you couldn't really play it. So I didn't really have much of an impression. But Miles's guitar sounded great. And then I was like, well, you know, I'm going to explore this a little bit. And then I kind of started going down this rabbit hole of Charlie Christian pickups, pre-war Gibson, ES-150s, and then ultimately an ES-250. So Jay... I think probably for his own reasons, was also interested in that era and Uh had a couple really cool guitars. And honestly, I'm not sure if he's the one or somebody else was the one that decided to take a really nice 1939 first year L5 premiere, which is the first time they did a cutaway. Uh And, you know, it doesn't have the right kind of bracing Uh for a Charlie Christian pickup. And they kind of just said, what the hell, I'm just going to, cut a big hole and throw this pickup in there. And it's like super glued in there and it's just a big mess. However, it sounds great. And yes, uh, Matt and his crew took a look at it, basically said, Uh you know what? You should probably just leave it.
1: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his description of it is just
2: (laughs) priceless.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine, yeah. And you played an L5 at one point.
2: You know, my early years around Kansas City were fantastic. because uh, I got a lot of great gigs with some of the greatest musicians I've ever known were uh, those guys that I was able to play with at age, you know, 15, 16, 17. Uh, and, you know, the other side benefit of working a lot as, you know, young kid like that is I actually managed to save some money. Uh, and I had my 175 that I had gotten for 100 bucks. From this guy in the town next to my town, Uh and then you know once I had you know a couple hundred bucks, I was like, well, you know the next good guitar above that is an L five. Maybe I should get an L five, and I did. The thing I didn't realize was that you know I'm definitely a more of a 16 inch size guitar person than a 17 inch, and you know I messed around with L fives. Even I think I even had a Super 400 that I borrowed for a while that
1: was gigantic. Wow. Yeah. Enormous. I don't know if you can see the video, but I, I have an L5. I do see that wall. up there. Yeah. See that? Yeah. That's a 76, which I was inspired to get because of Wes Montgomery live at the Subo. Right. You know, he had very similar guitar. Yep. Which was, yep exactly. And that was recorded in Berkeley. I'm from Berkeley, California. Cool. So I was studying with Joe Satriani. I was one of his last students before he turned professional. And he has a very similar aesthetic. He doesn't care about guitars, lets them go. But do you still have your classic 175? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. you know, there's not too many things that are
2: things that are really or like a personal possession that, for me, represents a lot of things. That does. There was even a point, you know, like... Quite a few years back, where you know, I mean, I played it every night on every gig from 1968 until 1998 or so. Wow! It was very rickety. I mean, I, you know, it had never been to a shop. It had never yes. been worked on. It had never had a fret job. Nothing. I had it taped together with duct tape. You know, it was getting to the point where I realized something could happen, and I I kind of retired it. And that was right around the time. Actually it was a little before that it was maybe more like 1989. Right, right. That I started, you know, the, a relationship with Ibanez which has been great. And yeah. what's cool about the Ibanez guitars is one to the next they're pretty consistent. I mean, I could like walk into a music store and grab a, you know, one of those models off the wall and yeah. right on stage and play the gig.
1: And they're great. Yeah. I always recommend those when people ask for totally. a uh, affordable yeah. jazz box
2: and as you know like every single l5 you pick up will be completely different yes there are no two that are the same and that's cool too you know i mean it's for somebody who's going to go out and play a whole lot of gigs the consistency thing is
1: kind of useful yeah absolutely and you also have these one-of-a-kind guitars like the picasso guitar And I'm going to jump in here before we get into too much detail. Pat's Picasso guitar, spelled with a K, -K P-I-K-A-S-S-O, which looks like something the great painter Pablo Picasso might have come up with, is this incredible instrument. It's quite striking. It has four necks, two sound holes, and 42 strings. (laughs) ¶¶ Now, listening to that is hypnotic enough, but watching him play it is mesmerizing. It's hard to believe it's just one person. And this is a great example of why the term jazz musician is not a complete description. And my favorite parts are always those huge strums. So he glides across a set of strings that he doesn't have to fret. It's just tuned naturally. He's fretting the part that looks like a guitar, and that's tuned in the bass range. That's where those low notes are coming from. Now there's some great video on YouTube. That's where this clip is taken from. There are a whole bunch. This particular one is in Rome at the Teatro Romano on July 14th, 2010. Where did that idea come from? Yeah, I mean- That's just incredible.
2: This is connected a little bit to, you know, kind of as we were talking the the whole idea of you know what is a guitar I mean in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways and my reference point to what is a guitar was fully formed by Kenny Burrell, Mm -hmm. Wes Montgomery, Jim Hall, Joe Pass and the few guys around Kansas City that would come to town that I would hear where it was a guy often sitting on a chair with an amp right next to him. Mm -hmm. and My reaction to that was well that's cool But, you know, when I would hear drummers or saxophone players and piano players, it seemed to me the sound was coming from all over the stage. It wasn't coming from just this one spot. And that sort of led me down a path of using a a bunch of different amps. I happened to be around in Boston when Lexicon came along and they I knew a guy that worked there kind of coincidentally, and we've just invented this thing called a digital delay. You might want to check it out. Yes. So I went out <laughs> there to Waltham and, you right. know, experimented with putting these delays between amps, and that became uh-huh. really a different sound. It was wildly different, particularly uh-huh. in my general zone. So kind of gradually, and, and, you know, this is now I'm 18 or 19 or so, starting to play with Gary Burton. Right. And... My sense of what a guitar is was expanding pretty rapidly after being pretty limited. I mean, I don't know how it was for you, but Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to really deal with Coltrane and that world, I mean, you got to take it's going to take years, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to devote yourself to that. And I, that was most of my teen years, was that. So I missed a lot of what was happening in other. Realms with how the guitar was developing because I was so focused on that area. But then once I kind of got this sense of, well, what is a guitar? A guitar is anything, it can be anything.
1: Yeah. And
2: I kind of embraced that. And that led me to, you know, expanding the sonic fingerprint of it with the amps, but then also to develop the idea of, like, well, if a guitar can be anything, let's go. And I was lucky somewhere in the early 80s to run across Linda Manzer. Linda Manzer, yes. Great Great Canadian builder. And she was just beginning around that time. And, you know, you probably experienced this too. It's one Mm -hmm. of the fringe benefits of, you know, being a professional that's player. out there and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of guitar builders coming to the sound check, bringing their guitars and wanting mm-hmm. you to try their guitars. It's great. Absolutely. And yep. most yep. of the time, I don't know how it is for you, but for yes. me, most of the time it's like, well, that's really cool. It's not exactly
1: my thing. It's not and, for well, me, but yeah, yeah, that's usually how it is. I have people bring pedals and same thing, but once in a while, they, yeah. you, know, you say, Oh, well, with yes. Linda,
2: she brought I mean. a guitar and it was like, one of those moments of like whoa now wait a minute here you know and that was the first you know steel string we call it the linda six that guitar is featured on first circle it's the guitar that's on the track lonely woman on rejoicing Mm. people talk about that a lot as uh, a particular acoustic guitar sound
1: Of tugs on your heartstrings, doesn't it? Such intimacy. So that's the track Pat's talking about. And I just wanted to jump in and shed a little bit of light on this album because there are some interesting facts surrounding it. So the rest of the album does not sound like that. (laughs) That's the one acoustic guitar track. And like he said, people talked about it a lot. They still do to this day. It's like a signature tune, signature sound. I knew folks who had this album just for that song. Again, the rest is very different. And looking at it now, several of the tunes seem like precursors for what was to come. For example, that song, which is called Lonely Woman, seems like a precursor to some of Pat's later intimate acoustic albums, like One Quiet Night. There's an intense Ornette Coleman-inspired tune called The Calling, which seems to be a precursor to his album with Ornette Coleman, Song X. So this album's called Rejoicing. It comes out in 1984. Song X will be recorded a year later in 1985. And by this time, Pat has just signed his deal with Geffen Records. And the first album that comes out is Song X. You have to wonder if the folks at Geffen were scratching their heads going, what have we got ourselves into? But he would follow that up with several albums by the Pat Metheny Group. That would become their biggest selling of all time. But back to rejoicing, the majority of the album is straight-ahead jazz trio. And some of it you could see as a precursor to question and answer, which would come in 1991. Now, prior to this, Pat's albums tended to feature musicians that were in his age group, give or take a few years. For example, his debut album, Bright Size Life, featured a brand new bass player named Jocko Pastorius, who we will discuss soon. And like him, the musicians he would introduce to the world for the Pat Metheny group were all his peers. Rejoicing, on the other hand, marked the first time that Pat was playing alongside musicians who'd been active in the 50s and 60s and had long-time street cred with serious jazz circles. And thanks to his amazing playing on this album with these veterans, Charlie Hayden and Billy Higgins, Pat would at long last have some of that street cred himself. Not that it matters to him. Pat is not overly affected by what others think, positive or negative, and is not driven by that either way. In fact, his big takeaway, as he explained in the interview with Rick Beato, is that this band reached even greater heights live and it wasn't accurately captured on the album. Regardless, there are many who deeply appreciate the album, including Rick Beato, who pushes back a little bit, and many others. However Pat feels about rejoicing as a whole, there's no question that it marks a turning point in the trajectory of Pat Metheny. It's the album that earns him jazz street cred. It's the album that establishes his relationship with Charlie Hayden, with whom he will become best friends and longtime musical collaborators. And it is the album that will help solidify his different sides from his straight ahead jazz guitar trio side to his avant-garde experimental free jazz side to his intimate acoustic side, which we'll get back to right now.
2: And her instruments just have a quality that's very unique in terms of being balanced from top to bottom. Yeah. You know, my relationship to acoustic guitar came much later. I was so focused on, on the electric thing. And her guitars, it really opened up a door for me because I realized why there is a way that using where I'm already kind of headed as a player, Uh this other way of looking at the instrument is kind of already there. I just had never really uncovered it. So that started that relationship, which then led to the most dreaded words that anybody in my crew (laughs) uh, ever hears is a sentence that starts out with, how hard would it be? <laughs> and Linda yeah. Linda was like totally game for whatever followed that. Yeah. There were, you know, a number of guitars that Linda made prior to the so-called uh-huh. Picasso guitar, the 42 string guitar, where she was like really up for trying things and then coming up with these great results. Yes. And for me, one of the things, because I write almost, all the music on piano Uh is so much easier than the guitar for guitar players. One of the things we all love and envy about piano is the sustain
1: pedal, because if we want no string, you got to keep your finger on it. Right. Yeah. Or we use open strings, but we're so limited on a typical six string. So the
2: idea with that 42 string guitar was like, okay, if I have a whole bunch more open strings Yeah. Then maybe I can get to some other harmonic stuff. And so I said to Linda, how hard would it be to (laughs) make a guitar that had as many strings? I think the way I described it to her, and I kind of drew something on a napkin, like to have as many strings as you could physically get on the top of a guitar. And she came up with that very unusual cubist like design of that guitar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've, been living with that instrument for 40 years or so now i have i think five distinctly different ways that i've deployed it in terms of it being kind of a baritone guitar in the middle or diatonic to a certain key or having three or four different keys or having a chromatic approach to it each one of them makes it a new instrument in a lot of ways so you tune it differently yeah i was always wondering about that you know, it likes being in harmony with itself. It has a resonant capacity that's somewhat sympathetic, string-type stuff going on. Yeah. But, you know, like all her guitars, and guitars in general, especially good ones, as the years go by, they just get better and better. And that guitar, yeah. which has really had a rough life because
1: it's mm-hmm. it's been all over, all over the world. The world.
2: Yeah it's had to get significant major repairs several times along the way. And it just seems to come back better each time. And there's uh, just one. She's made a couple others. I think there were some requests from, you know, Japanese billionaires and stuff (laughs) allowed her to continue her research in other
1: areas. And it's always the collectors (laughs) resources. Yeah. 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 The music you play on that is amazing. It's so different from everything else you do. To me, it's like some of the few examples of a guitar player kind of capturing a mood, like a Keith Jarrett solo album. I wonder, did the guitar help bring about those sounds or were you already envisioning the sounds before the guitar came along?
2: Well, I referenced the piano I mean, I don't think I could go play a gig on piano. Uh, yes, but, same um, here. <laughs> yeah, but it's such an incredible instrument too. It's like if you have a really good piano that a really good tuner has mm-hmm. just tuned and you play a good voicing, people are going to go, wow, you're a genius.
1: That's right. That's
2: <laughs> and right. actually, no, it's, the piano is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and as we both know, it might take you 10 years to get a really great, sounding chord like that on a guitar, you know, yes. um, you know, it's a whole other thing. So when I'm writing music, it's just easier to not have to deal with any of those things, not to mention the general gravity of the guitar, which does tend to pull you towards the kinds of things that it likes. And yes, there are times I want to take advantage of that, but there are times I don't want to have to deal with that. However, In the case of the Picasso guitar, for instance, Ah. it's a matter of orchestration, really. Mm -hmm. And the the particular kind of orchestration that you could get with that instrument, there are a few signposts that might lead you to that. If you think about a harp, for instance, or maybe even an auto harp, you know, there are references of instruments where there's a lot of close intervals that can coexist with each other in a kind of glissando type way, but it's not something we normally have on a guitar like you or I would pick up and go play a gig on. So, you know, part of it for me would be to take advantage of that. It's not necessarily something that I imagined before the instrument came along.
1: So that's a little different. And just a few final thoughts on Pat's Picasso guitar. It did make a quick cameo on song X shortly after it was built, but it wasn't long before Pat would be able to put time into it and develop a style unique to the instrument. As time went on, the guitar was featured more and more, and today we are very lucky to have numerous recordings of Pat's in which the Picasso plays a starring role. One tune that's become sort of a signature tune for this guitar is Into the Dream from my personal favorite Pat Metheny Group album, Imaginary Day. He also has a great version of Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence entirely on this guitar. just breathtaking, the sound of silence. Hard to believe it's the same person that did an album called Zero Tolerance for Silence, which we'll get to later. Really covers all the ranges of dynamics, tones, human emotion. I mean, what a complete musician. So we're a little over five minutes past the half hour point. Usually we take a break right on the half hour, Usually that's easier because when we have a guest, the conversations are broken up into smaller bits and we can work around them. In the case of Pat, I don't want to interrupt the conversations. His answers are interesting coming out of the gate. He brings up many points. Occasionally he'll go off into some unpredictable territory, yet it always relates to the topic at hand. And he finishes up and it's connected to where he began. Does this process seem kind of familiar? Kind of like a good solo? Hmm. And I've heard him make that comparison before. A solo that loses the listener's interest is a little bit like a conversation with somebody who bounces from subject to subject, doesn't stick with the topic at hand, and by the time the conversation ends, you can't even remember what you were talking about in the first place. Know anybody like that? I do. Not going to name any names. Pat makes another really good language comparison in a segment that's coming up. And normally I do housekeeping right here, but I've made an executive decision. No housekeeping. We have Pat Matheny here. Today is all about Pat. For any information about what's going on with me, you know where to go. At Alex Skolnick on Instagram and Twitter. Alex Skolnick official on Facebook. The Real Alex Skolnik on YouTube, The Real Alex Skolnick on TikTok as of recently, and finally, alexskolnik.com and alexskolnik.net. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and
2: a lot of stories.
1: I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening.
2: Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the N.Y. Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you
1: get podcasts. Now, so far, you've heard pretty much our entire conversation in chronological order. Here is where I'm making one alteration. After discussing Pat's Picasso guitar, we segued right into his Roland synth guitar, which is another one of his unique, distinct sounds. Of course, that's an equally interesting part of the conversation and an important component in the story of Pat Metheny. However, since we've just spent a good amount of time focused on Pat's Picasso guitar, rather than follow that up with another extensive segment focused on a specific instrument, I think it'll make more sense to save that for part two. Instead, we're going to skip ahead to this next segment, where Pat talks specifically about finding your own sound. Now, just to set this up for folks who don't know, Pat is from Lee's Summit originally. That's about 25 minutes from Kansas City. And uh, he used to make the trip into town and sit in with many great jazz musicians. Kansas City has some important jazz history, being the birthplace of Charlie Parker And it also has its own jazz style, much like Chicago has its own blues style. And it's kind of interesting to think about this point in time. Jazz rock fusion is just about to happen. It doesn't really happen until the late 60s, early 70s. And Miles Davis attends the Monterey Pop Festival on the West Coast with John McLaughlin. Together they take acid. True story. And Miles Davis is inspired to incorporate psychedelic rock into his own music. This will not only lead to electric jazz becoming a thing, but sonic innovation will become a part of improvisation, no longer limited to pianos, upright basses, and hollow-body guitars. And as we all know, Pat Metheny will become one of the most high-profile figures in the field of electric jazz and blending jazz and rock, He does it without the acid, by the way. He's never touched a drug. (laughs) He will also become one of the leading sonic innovators, challenging traditional notions about what a guitar, and specifically a jazz guitarist, should sound like. But way before that, it's still the 60s, and Pat Metheny is a teen prodigy. He's a kid that comes in from a quiet part of town, about 25 minutes away, to play in the big city with these older jazz musicians, folks who knew Charlie Parker. And it's amazing, this kid, he's only in his teens, can play just like Wes Montgomery. And that's really not easy. What Jimi Hendrix is to rock guitar, Wes Montgomery has always been to traditional jazz guitar, going back to the late 50s and early 60s. Here's a brief clip of him in 1960. So folks on the scene can't believe what they're witnessing. This kid who plays just like Wes. And no one can deny that he's doing a great job at it and has talent. Some, however, can't help but convey the sentiment. You got to find your own voice, kid. Let's get back to Pat. Just all these different tones that it's so beyond just the classic jazz sound. And of course, your, your original sound, which was different than anybody else. You know, going back to Bright Size Life. Was that always a goal, just to be different from everybody else and have all these multiple sonic options?
2: I will say that for me, you know, I'm of a generation where coming up with your own sound was a mandate. You were supposed to do that. Somewhere in there, that changed, you know, it's like I can almost place it to like 1980 or so, Mm -hmm. where suddenly it was like, wow, you sound just like Wayne Shorter. That's right. great, as opposed to like many generations where it's like, yeah, he's a good player. I Man, he just sounds too much like Wayne, you know, right. that would have been the way it would have gone. So for me, my hero, still my main hero, more than ever is Wes Montgomery. Yes. And I mean, every note I play before I play it, I want to drop the pick, play with my thumb and do it. Uh-huh. In I mean, you know, that to me is like the way I hear it. I was very lucky to be around, again, in Kansas City, a couple musicians, one in particular, who, when I would whip out my thing, and actually, the issue of house is a thing, too, right? I mean, I was 15, 16 years old, and I could do kind of the West thing that everybody can do now, you know, but, and people would go nuts, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, this is, and I have... I was lucky to have guys kind of go, you know, how come you're doing Wes's thing, man, you know, and without even saying it sometimes. Right. And I realized, and I've said this many times, but it's worth saying, it's like I had a moment where I, I realized I want to do what he did, not what he did. And mm. by that, I mean, what he did is that he found a way to represent his life, his spirit, his being in a sound that was his. And his alone. And I also realized I love this guy so much. I love that music so Mm. much. It's almost disrespectful to do that. So I made a hardcore decision. I think I was Mm. 16. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. And Mm. as much as I wanted to, and as much as I still want to, I don't. And to that degree of like saying, okay, I want to have a sound. Mm -hmm. I knew that the beginning of that was saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And that, of course, forced me to come up with other things. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the process that one goes down towards maybe someday getting something together that is identifiably uh, a sound or a characteristic or something that identifies who you are and i think that you know a word that people throw around a lot mm-hmm. that i think is a valuable word to use in a conversation like this is the question of authenticity right. and i think that it really does have to be something that you're discussing in your sound in a sonic way and as a musician that's very personal and very real to who you are and in my case i understood that yeah my life Growing up in Lee's Summit, Missouri was not like somebody growing up in New York City or something like that. And I, you know, embrace that. And I still do. In addition to liking, you know, being able to really deal with harmony in a complex way, which has been kind of part of the language that I needed to understand to do what I wanted to do as a musician there's still almost nothing better than a bunch of guys sitting around playing G E minor back and right. forth, you know? I mean, it's <laughs> like the greatest, you know, that's like one of the best uses of the instrument. Well,
1: you have examples of that sometimes yeah. right? Uh, on you know. your new album, just to touch on that, you have a song, "Lodger." Mm. That's a, that's rock. I mean, that's full on rock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've a, done your way, but it reminds <laughs> me of what you're talking about.
2: I've always felt like there's no need for anything to be mutually exclusive of anything yeah. else. I'm really much more in the both and category than the either or. Yes. And it's not just me. You're like that too, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, okay. I've
2: heard you all over the place doing all kinds of different things, you know, oh, you yeah? oh, have. Oh yeah.
1: And in case you're wondering how I felt in that moment, hearing Pat Matheny say he's heard my playing and is aware of the different things I do. Let's put it this way. The term over the moon is an understatement. So as far as this tune of his that came up, it's called Lodger. And here's a quick sample of it off his new recording, Side Eye NYC. That's pretty rockin', right? It's easy to imagine a Greg Allman or Tom Petty or Susan Tedeschi or Warren Haynes or some other vocalist coming in right there. You know, I thought of that song in particular when Pat mentioned the beauty of simply moving from G to E minor. This song actually does the reverse, E minor to G, starting with E minor. That's G, then A da da then see and so forth. Now, how cool is it that somebody who has participated in so much complex music at a high level, whether as a collaborator or creating it himself, and as somebody who has studied some of Pat's music, let me tell you, it can be complex, recognizes the beauty of simplicity.
2: Our generation in general, I think, is like that because we've all grown up loving the mavish New Orchestra And Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Beatles, and Albert Ayler, and you know, Shostakovich. To me, a normal response to the music that I love as a fan has always been okay, well, what is that, and how does it work, and how did they play this? How does one go about functioning in that setting? And you know, the generation of guys just above me, and that includes sadly recently departed chick Oh God, jarrett, so you know gary yeah. burton is in that category herbie's yeah. in this category you know it's like we use the j word but the j word the j word doesn't even begin to encompass what those guys keith jarrett like right. you mentioned i mean it's like there's a way of being a musician that is yeah. kind of new in a way that those guys all represent. And those were the guys that I aspired to and still aspire to be like in the sense that there's no boundary. It's yes. like about creativity. It's not about genre or style or whatever. And in a way, this connects to the, what we were talking about before in terms of sound. Yes. So my thing gradually moved away from just being the 175 and an amp into these other areas. And I mean, God, we can talk all day about the difference between Beyond the Missouri Sky and
1: Song X. and All right. Because he brought it up, we have to interrupt and touch upon Beyond the Missouri Sky. Damn it, Pat. <laughs> In all seriousness, Beyond the Missouri Sky is an album that we were going to take a look at one way or the other. So why not now? I do hate to interrupt, though. Talking to Pat is like a university music history course combined with a TED Talk on unleashing your inner creativity. I don't know about you, but I'm inspired. So Beyond the Missouri Sky comes out in 1996, 10 years after Song X, which he mentioned and which we heard a snippet of. Now, at first listen, one could be forgiven for not realizing that there's a deep connection between Song X and Beyond the Missouri Sky. Now, the most obvious connection is Charlie Hayden, the bass player who was mentioned earlier, one of the top names in acoustic upright bass. And if you'll recall, Charlie Hayden had played with Ornette Coleman in the 50s and 60s, and it was the love of Ornette Coleman's music that brought them together on Pat's album, Rejoicing. And also, you may recall that Rejoicing was largely inspired by Ornette Coleman. It had his rhythm section of Billy Higgins and Charlie Hayden. There were several Ornette tunes There were moments of challenging listening in the style of Ornette, and, of course, it led to the follow-up album, an entire album of challenging listening, which was a collaboration with Ornette himself, also including Charlie on bass. That album was, of course, Song X. So what does all this have to do with the album Beyond the Missouri Sky? Well, you may recall that the album preceding Song X, Pat's Rejoicing, which also featured Charlie Hayden on the bass, had an opening track, which for many listeners was the highlight of the album, despite sounding nothing like the rest of it. That song, of course, was Lonely Woman, which we heard earlier, and to add another wrinkle is not an Ornette Coleman tune, despite this being an Ornette Coleman-flavored record and Ornette Coleman having a well-known song with that title. It's actually an arrangement of a tune by Horace Silver. Regardless, Lonely Woman established this intimate acoustic playing of Pat. Remember, that's where he introduced the Linda Six, designed by Linda Manzer. And part of what made that song great was Charlie Hayden's bass playing in combination with Pat's guitar playing. So for listeners who wish they would do an entire album with that bass and intimate acoustic guitar, Beyond the Missouri Sky to the Rescue. Now, before we hear a quick clip of the music, I just want to mention that Charlie Hayden and Pat became so close after first playing together on Rejoicing. They became longtime collaborators on many albums, not just Song X and Beyond the Missouri Sky, although those are very noteworthy ones. They're both from the Midwest. They didn't know each other growing up, they had a nearly 20 year age difference, yet they became inseparable, both personally and musically. Now, the album does have some of the steel string guitar heard in Lonely Woman. But there are different guitars as well, including nylon string, and I want to play a quick clip of that. So beautiful. So in the liner notes, they talk about growing up in small towns in Missouri and capturing that energy on the album. But there's also a slight international flavor as well. That's the theme from Cinema Paradiso, the Italian film. And this one here is called Our Spanish Love Song.
2: thing I, I always want to point out is that to me sound should be a reflection of an idea, yes. not the other way around. Like I think there are musicians, it's like, well, my sound is this and I'm right. going to impose that on whatever. And my approach has always been a little bit like language in the sense that, okay, so if you're thirsty, you're thirsty before you say you're thirsty in Portuguese or Ancient Flemish mm-hmm. or Greek or Spanish right. or, or right. English. First of all, you're thirsty. To me, I'm always that. I'm always like, okay. Oh, that's an The idea, and then what is the best way to express that idea? And I really just follow the idea. And the idea is generally, first of all, quite unforgiving. You know, I can take an idea and I can play it on a nylon string guitar, and yeah. the idea is going to say, no, man, that's no. Right, Or you have a, a picture in your mind of like, you know, for instance, the choral sitar to me is like a really great orchestrational device right. that we all have access to. And I've always loved that sound. And, you know, that tune, Last Train Home, mm-hmm. is that. Yeah, that's the correct response to that idea sonically.
1: Yes. You have the wisdom to recognize that. Though. The humility to... If it says, "Oh, this isn't going to work for what you're trying to do,"
2: sometimes that means that you're deficient. <laughs>
1: yes, I mean, actually, in my
2: case, very often that's the case. It's like, maybe this could work, but I'm not making it work.
1: But right, that's just being honest, and that's how yeah. you find stuff. That <laughs> and since he mentioned his classic Pat Metheny group tune, "Last Train Home," and its sitar guitar, here is a little bit of that. When I really started getting into your stuff, my big gateway to the J-word, if you will, <laughs> or the, the F-word is really... That's even worse. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, to me, it was the electric Miles Davis music yeah, of the 80s. Yeah, some of the stuff that some of his fans and the critics were not keen on.
2: Are you talking about the Miles Electric of the 80s or the Miles Electric of the 70s? They're very different
1: things. Yeah, very different. It was the 80s that I had discovered him, seeing him on public television. Post-return. Yes. But, you know, in various bands, you had Schofield, you had Stern, you had Robin Ford, so I just said, "Oh, this is great! This is screaming guitar. <laughs> this is like super funk bass, you know, Daryl Jones or whoever he had at the time, Marcus Miller," and that kind of drew me in. And then I was told by some you know local musicians that, okay, all of those people can play standards. <laughs> they may not be playing it right there. <laughs> But the only way to get a handle on that music is to get an understanding of what came before, which led to studying with more straight-ahead artists and eventually just diving into that, buying the L5 that you see on the wall, telling myself that guitar is going to go back if I don't get my playing together (laughs) on that, which led to moving to New York and getting a degree at the new school. And studying with people like Vic Juris and George Garzon and Reggie Workman. But at the time, yeah, it started with Electric Miles. And then, like, I appreciated the Pat Matheny group. But I was at a show, I think it was Yoshi's, the original Yoshi's. I don't know if you ever remember that in Oakland. Mm-hmm. It was a very small venue, Japanese restaurant. And McLaughlin was there with this tiny group. It was like him, Treelock Gertu. And before the show, the sound person was playing this guitar. I'd never heard anything like it. And I asked what it was and it was, he said, Pat Metheny. I'm like, Pat Metheny, you mean like letter from home,
2: Pat Metheny?
1: And it was a <laughs> uh, question and answer.
2: Huh.
1: And from there I said, Oh my goodness, this is like, I don't know why I didn't expect it. And it's not that you can't make a connection between the two. It's just, I guess the palette is so different between each other. You're the same soloist and the same accompanist, but the textures were so different. And for some reason, that one really drew me in. It opened me up to the other stuff that I guess you could say it was more accessible. It was more visible, but it really got me to appreciate all your different sides, which went beyond just, <laughs> just that.
2: Well, that's great. Oh, man. Yeah. Thank so that you. was
1: where, that was where it started. And then okay. I heard you on Brecker's first album, first solo album, I transcribed nothing personal. Oh wow. Your that was one of my first jazz solos I transcribed.
2: That's so cool. Yeah.
1: Man. And before we hear Pat's follow-up to what I've been saying, let's hear a quick snippet from the solo I was just referring to. Pat with the late, great Michael Brecker on a tune called Nothing Personal. Of those well,
2: you know, it's funny for me because, um, you know, of course, in the course of a day or a year or whatever on the road, I meet lots of different people who have wildly different relationships with my thing in general. Mm-hmm. And it's always interesting for me to hear like this record or that record was the record or, you know, very often I can usually guess the age of somebody by what record it is that they're talking about. Oh, yes. Just the other day, I had a really funny one. And there's almost always a thing that comes with not, certainly nothing like what you just said, but there's an implied, like, my favorite record is such and such. And kind of like, when are you going to do something like that again? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm sure you get that. Yeah, everybody. I think every musician does. But I had one the other day. I did this record, you know, orchestrion with a, with a robot. Robots. You know, that's a, that's that was great.
1: And I'm going to jump in just for a moment to elaborate on what he was just talking about. The orchestrion project was one in which you could really see Pat's brilliance, not just on a musical level, but on a scientific level, it was basically Pat with an entire band That sounded a little bit like the Pat Metheny group, a little bit like some of his solo projects. It had its own unique sound. The thing about it was the band was all robots. And I would not begin to explain how this works, but I know that Pat would trigger it himself, and then one thing would lead to another. You can kind of picture a Rube Goldberg machine, only it looked very simple. It looked like a mechanical band, and the music that resulted sounded like Metheny music. (laughs) Not that it sounded like any of his other specific projects, but it's Pat leading the thing and playing on top of it. And the whole thing's built around what he's playing. And midway through the concert, the music stopped, the lights went on, Pat put down his guitar and took a seat near the front of the stage and started talking. And it was an informal lecture about the project, the technology behind it, how it came together, what his motivations were. It was quite fascinating. And you could have pictured him as a robotics professor at MIT.
2: That's 12 years ago now. The, the first thing I would say about that record is that it proved once and for all just
1: how weird I actually am. Um, <laughs> I saw I, you do that live, actually. Did like, you really? Uh, yeah, well, in New York. And uh, you gave a great lecture right in the middle of it on yeah, solenoids. And,
2: unless and unless <laughs> you saw it live, I think you didn't really, it, it was impossible to understand what it was. But Anyway, I had a kid probably in his mid 20s come up to me the other day, and it was the first time. When are you going to do something like orchestrion again? You know, like, you know, kind of like something really cool. And I was like, wow, you know, that's 12. Well, it's 12 years ago now. That's about his generation, right? But what I was going to say about that is that, and I understand that, and, you know, that people come in in different ways. And often I'm then, it comes to me like, there's these different sides. There's this side and that side, or there's this version of me versus that version. You know, if I can communicate anything in it all, is that no, they're not sides. It's Mm -hmm. one
1: thing. All right, let's stop right there. I'm gonna hit pause. How's that for a quote? So this dialogue continues for a bit. I think it's best if we save that for part two. We will revisit, review what came before, and pick up where we left off. There is also much more to come. For now, I cannot think of a better way to end part one of our episode with Pat Metheny than those three words of Pat's. It's one thing. Well, what can I say? I hope you've enjoyed Pat Metheny part one as much as I have. And indeed, what a shining light of creativity, productivity, and somebody we can all look up to, musician or otherwise, for inspiration to make the most of our limited time on this planet. In part two, things will get even more philosophical and we'll get into the highly unique, but unknown at the time, bass player on Pat's debut album named Jocko Pistorius. We will also discuss Pat and Jocko together, working with a wonderful vocalist named Joni Mitchell. Did you know about that? That and so much more will be in our follow-up episode, Pat Bethany Part 2. So special thanks to Pat's team of Taylor Perry, Matt Hanks, and Max Lefkowitz. And extra special thanks to our own Kirsten Kluthi from Osiris for getting the ball rolling. And of course, extra, extra special thanks to Pat himself. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. Opening theme by yours truly. Outro music by yours truly. Joined by Nathan Peck on the bass and Matt Zabrowski on the drums. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe. And we are grateful for any ratings or reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And last but not least, extra special thanks to all members of our Patreon community. You make it all possible. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com/slash Alex Skolnick. That's it for part one of Pat Metheny. I'll see you next time on part two. Osiris.
0: Hey listeners.